The lesson this morning is from Psalm 19. And I appreciate Brian leading us in that song to help get us ready to look at the scriptures. There are many songs that are written that we sing that are inspired by psalms, but I especially like that one because of just how literal it is from the text, and I think you'll see that right away as we read it. But I've often found that some of the psalms that are the most powerful to me are also some of the psalms that are the most well-known. On the surface, it might seem sort of cliché, or overdone, that there are certain psalms that everybody seems to like. But what I found is that when I look at those psalms that everybody seems to like, I really like them a lot too. And I see why they're so popular. Recently, I've preached on Psalm 23, on Psalm 1. Psalm 19 is another one of those examples. It is a familiar psalm, but it's familiar for good reason. C.S. Lewis called this psalm the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I try to shy away from ranking scripture as being greatest or greater than others, but I do find it hard to disagree with C.S. Lewis here. Very succinctly, this psalm reminds us of the treasure of God's word. And in doing so, it can stir up our hearts and our minds for wanting to know God even more. We actually discussed this psalm this past week uh, in our Tuesday night home Bible study. And I found the discussion very helpful and thought that it would be worth our time to consider it together this morning. So what I'd like to do is start by reading the psalm in its entirety I'll have all the text on the screen um, split up into different sections, but at the beginning I'll just read from my Bible, and you can either listen or follow along in yours. But I'll be reading Psalm 19, all 14 verses. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor, or, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, you might notice that there are three distinct parts to this psalm. The first part is verses 1 through 6, which focus on what God has revealed about himself through creation. The second part is verses 7 through 11, which focus on what God has revealed about himself through his word. And then the third part is verses 12 through 14, which conclude the psalm with a prayer. And so you might think about the first part of this psalm being about general revelation, what God has revealed to everybody through the creation. The second part is about specific revelation, what God has revealed directly and specifically through his word. And then the third part is a response from David, a prayer that is directed back to God. And so let's explore these three sections as we go. We'll start by looking at verses 1 through 6. And this is the part about general revelation. In verse 1, David begins by saying, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isn't that a powerful thought? That we can look up at the sky, we can gaze into the heavens, and we can come to appreciate something of the glory of God. In the stars, God has chosen to reveal himself to us in ways that we can appreciate and understand. I just think that as a general guideline or a general habit, that we would all probably do better to just more intentionally notice the things that God has made. To appreciate the wonder of the creation that surrounds us. You know, it's so easy to just sort of go about our lives and never actually look up at the stars. To never actually stop and smell the roses. And think about the beauty that God has chosen to put into the creation. When was the last time that you noticed the gentle light of the moon? Or paid attention to the warmth of the sun? On your skin? When was the last time that you listened to the rustling of tall grass in the breeze? Or the singing of the birds? Or the pitter patter of raindrops? Have you thought about the depth of the ocean? The hidden creatures that live deep in its depths? When was the last time you considered the power of the storm? or the expanse of the universe. God made all of those things. And he made them in a way that is impressive because he wants us to be impressed with them. The creation is glorious because the creator is glorious. And we see his beauty and his power in the power and beauty of the creation. And so in verse 2, he says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The point is that every day there is a new display of God's glory. Every day it's like he puts the big 
you know, movie in the sky. He puts the big presentation there for us to see so that we would be impressed every day with who he is. The creation continually bears witness to the creator. And it's these thoughts in Psalm 19 or thoughts that are similar to these that I think Paul draws on in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1 and verse 19, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that no one on planet earth can say that they have seen no evidence for God. Anybody who is a human being living on this planet, surrounded by this creation, ought to be able to conclude that there is a creator who is powerful, who is wise, who is glorious, and who is wonderful. And his invisible attributes, the things that we wouldn't be able to comprehend, his eternal power, his divine nature, have become visible in the creation that surrounds us. You know, I think that's the idea in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 19. He says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Everybody who has ever lived has lived under the light of the stars. Everybody who has ever lived has seen the sun. And Paul says that in those things, there is no excuse for those who do not recognize God. But then David reflects on the sun in verses 4 through 6. He talks about, in verse 4, how the star's voice has gone out to the ends of the world, but in the stars, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. And he talks about the sun being like this bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man running its course with joy, rising from the end of the heavens, completing its circuits with nothing hidden from its heat. David imagines the sun like a young married man. The idea is like every night he goes to sleep and every morning he bursts out of his house just happy and eager and joyful for what the day holds. And I think that this gives us a clue about where the psalm is going. Because here you can notice how the creation is made to thrive. You know, the thing about the sun is that the sun never takes a day off. You know, at least in my 32 years, I've never woken up and looked outside and thought, oh, okay, well, the sun is, you know, just taking the day off. The sun continues to rise every day. Every day, without fail, the sun erupts from its chamber and runs its course with joy. The lesson there for us is that we will have joy when we do what we were made to do. Just like the sun never takes a day off from obeying the will of God, we also ought to never take a day off from obeying the will of God. And when we do what we were designed to do, we will have joy. Just like the sun does. 
And it's with these thoughts that the psalm turns now to specific revelation in verses 7 through 11. You know, the general revelation of creation is available to everybody. Again, that was Paul's point from Romans chapter 1, is that everybody who's a human being on planet Earth sees what God has made in creation, but there is specific revelation that is contained in God's word, and it's only for those who seek him. In other words, everyone should be able to infer some general truths about God. Romans 1 talked about his eternal power, his divine nature, the general idea that there is a God who is wise and powerful and wonderful, but the specific truths, the specific revelation about who this God is, what he expects from us, what happens when we die, those questions can only be answered when we look beyond the creation and into the word that God has revealed. And this contrast between verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 11 is actually uh, reflected in a name change. If you notice in verse 1, he talks about the glory of God. But then when he gets to verse 7, he switches, and he doesn't call God God, but he calls him the Lord. It's the law of the Lord. And so the subject of verses 1 through 6 is the Hebrew word El, sometimes Elohim, which is the more general word for deity or for God. But the subject of verses 7 through 11 is the Lord. And when you see that in all caps in your Bible, that means that it is a reference uh, that in Hebrew it is the tetragrammaton. It's, it's the name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The King James Version chooses to translate it as Jehovah. And so what we see here is that now there is a specific focus and a specific celebration on how God has revealed his truth, not only to all of humanity, but to those who love him and to those who seek him and to those who know him. And it's through his word. And so this is probably the most familiar section of the psalm to us. This is the section that we sing. If you're like me, it's hard to read these verses and not sort of start, you know, singing them in a melody. But you might notice that these verses, or at least verses 7 through 9, are basically saying the same things over and over again. Really what it is, is a celebration of God's word and what God's word does for us. But there are many different angles to appreciate it from. It's almost like saying it one time wouldn't be enough, so we say it six times to really emphasize the power of the Word of God. And you'll notice that David uses six different synonyms for the Word of the Lord. And each one sort of has its own unique flavor to it. There is the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. All of those used as synonyms for the word of the Lord. And each one of those terms is also attached to a unique quality. It is perfect, it is sure, it's right and pure and clean and true. And then also there are six different statements about 
what the word of God does. There are specific blessings. It revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous altogether. Now I'll just tell you, these six statements would make for six pretty good sermons. I'm not going to preach six sermons to you right now. But I do want to show you what I mean. Just take the first statement in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word for law here is the word Torah. When we think of law, we normally think of something that is stiff and oppressive. The law is why I can't drive as fast as I want to drive sometimes, right? Like, even if I disagree with it, even if I don't understand it, even if I think that it should be a higher speed limit than, in, than what is posted somewhere, I, I have to comply with it because that's the law. But here's the thing about God's law. It's perfect. It is a flawless design for the way things ought to be ordered. God's word gives us perfect blueprints about how to live our lives. It gives us a perfect uh, organization to the way that we ought to be as people, the way that we ought to prioritize ourselves. It gives us perfect blueprints for our character or our relationships. And so we ought not think about God's law as being something that's burdensome or something that's oppressive or something that's like kind of like a drag, but I guess I'll just do it anyway. No, it revives the soul. The King James Version says converting the soul. The New American Standard says restoring the soul. The NIV says refreshing the soul. So the idea is that God's law can teach us how we were designed to function. That when we operate according to the operator's manual, we will be operating at our best and will flourish as the people we were made to be. Look at the second one. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony is what someone purports to be true. So, like in court, when somebody takes the witness stand, they give their testimony, right? And then the lawyers take their turns, you know, cross-examining and trying to figure out if what the person testified was true or not. But what about when God gives testimony? What about when God says to us, this is true. This is what happened. This is the fact of the matter. Do we have to doubt him? Do we have to second guess him? Do we need to go look for a second opinion, see if there's somebody else who agrees with him? Or can we just accept it as being sure? That's what David says. That the testimony of the Lord is sure. God can't lie. There are no missing gaps in his knowledge. It's not like he's going to tell us something that's mistaken or inaccurate. When God tells us something, 
He has given us every reason to trust him absolutely. And so we can always believe his testimony. And that connects to the blessing here at the end of verse 7. It says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You know, there's two different ways that you could read that. One is to say that if you are a simple-minded person, like if you are somebody that is sort of naive or gullible or shallow, that God's word can actually give you wisdom. It can transform you from being simple to being wise. There's another way that you can read that, though. And another way to read this is that simple-mindedness is essential for obtaining wisdom. In other words, there are some people who read God's word and are constantly looking for ways to twist it or to disbelieve it, to make it say the opposite of what it actually says. But there's a certain beauty to somebody who comes to God's word and says, whatever God says, that's what I'm going to believe. Whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Even if I don't understand it, even if... Uh, It's different than what I've thought in the past. Whatever God says, that is what I will simply be obedient to. And I think both of those ideas are true. That wisdom is available for people who will simply read God's word with a desire to understand it and do it. And I've got to say, both of those ideas are very encouraging to me. As far back as I can remember, I have always wanted to be a wise person. And as far back as I can remember, I've always felt frustrated that I'm not as wise as I want to be. I've seen other people that are wise, and I've thought, if only I could be wise like them. But I know that the more that I learn from God's word, the more wisdom I have. I know that I need more of it, but I also know that I can see it working in me. And so, as somebody who has benefited from God's word, somebody that has gained some amount of wisdom, I can tell you that I have learned more wisdom from God's word than from any book or philosophy or any other kind of idea that's out there. This is where the treasure is. It makes wise the simple. Now, you could see how you could go through this exercise with each of the remaining four descriptions, which I know that we don't have time for uh, in its entirety. But look at the beginning of verse 8. The precepts of the Lord, that would be his statutes or his mandates, they are right or correct. They rejoice our hearts. At the end of verse 8, he says, Yahweh's commandments are pure. You know, when God tells us what to do, it's not because he has ulterior motives. It's not because he's trying to manipulate us or use us. It's for our own good. And when we listen to his direction, when we go where he says to go, when we do what he says to do, it enlightens our eyes. It illuminates the path for us to walk. At the beginning of verse 9, this is interesting. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
I might not have thought to use the fear of the Lord as a synonym for the word of the Lord, but in the context, that's clearly what he's doing. And I think the point here is that the fear of Yahweh is clean, that there's nothing unclean or inappropriate about it. There's nothing dirty or immature about fearing God. In fact, as much as we come to love God through his word, and we should have a closeness and an intimacy with him, our fear of him should never disappear. In fact, it should grow along with our love. Fear and love are coupled together. And when we read God's word as it is meant to be read, and we understand it the way that it's meant to be understood, we will grow in both love and fear of him. At the end of verse 9, the final description is the rules of the Lord. He says that they are true and righteous altogether. Yahweh's judgments are always reliable. And not only are they righteous individually, you know, it's not just that every single word that God says is true, but the entirety of God's word is true. Psalm 119 in verse 160 says the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so not only are God's rules righteous individually, but they are also righteous altogether. And because of all of that, David says in verse 10, more to be desired are they then gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. If God's word can do all of these things for us that we've been talking about, then what could possibly be more valuable to us than it? What is it that you could obtain that would be more useful to you than the word of God? What is it that would be better for you as a person? What is it that would be better for your relationships? What is it that would be better for your peace and your joy and your satisfaction and your purpose and your understanding of who you are in life than the word of God? What's more worthy of our time and attention? David says it's more desirable than the finest gold, than the sweetest honey. It's better than the highest paying job. It's better than the most attractive partner. It's it's, it's better than the greatest sum of money or the most illustrious career or the nicest house or car. God's word is the most valuable treasure in the world. And that's not an overstatement. And we have unlimited access to it today. You know, for the vast majority of human history, that would be unthinkable. For many years, people didn't even have access to the Bible in their own language. And we walk around with little computers in our pockets where we can pull it up anytime we want. We don't realize how blessed we are. But look at what he says in verse 11 about why God's word is so useful. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
God's word is sweet like honey. When we understand the truth of God's word, it is an exhilarating experience. We can relish it and we can delight in it. But what David wants us to remember is that it's not enough to just know it. It's in keeping it that there is great reward. The blessing comes when we obey it. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 13 in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so, these thoughts are what lead to the prayer at the end. In verse 12, David says, who can discern his errors? Who has the ability to really know how to live? You know, if, if you just sort of like lived on a desert island and you had no access to the word of God and it was just up to you to come up with a list of, you know, like a framework for how to live. How good a job do you think you'd be able to do? How good a job do you do being able to evaluate yourself? See, this is why we need God's word. It shows us ourselves as we really are. I think that's the point in Hebrews chapter 4 when the writer talks about how God's word is living and active and it's like this sharp two-edged sword. He says this is what it does for us. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes we are blind to ourselves because we're not letting God's word do its job. We're not letting it sink down deep into our hearts and convict us. But when we do, it becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so it's with all of those things in mind that David goes to God and he says, you are the one who can deliver me from my sins. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. In other words, whether it's a secret hidden sin that maybe nobody else knows about, maybe it's even secret and hidden from me because I don't realize that there's something I need to change. Or whether it's a presumptuous sin, a heavy-handed, fist-raised kind of rebellious attitude, David says, God, you are the one who can deliver me from them both. You are the one who can give me freedom from the sin that enslaves me. And so in verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. David's prayer is that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would be acceptable in God's sight. And, and those two things are very closely related, aren't they? Whatever we allow to consume our hearts will be what comes out of our mouths. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words of your mouth will be shaped by the meditations of your heart. Whatever shapes your thinking shapes your life. And so if your thoughts are always revolving around things that are shallow 
and worldly? Well, don't be surprised if you become a person who is shallow and worldly. But if your thoughts revolve around things that are deep and spiritual and meaningful, then you will become a person who is increasingly deep and spiritual and meaningful. Whatever consumes your heart, whatever consumes your thoughts, that's what consumes your life. And I love how the Psalms blur the line between Bible study and prayer. You know, typically we think about how we have a relationship with God and, you know, a relationship is dependent upon conversation. And so what happens in communication with God is he speaks to us through his word and then we speak back to him in prayer. And that's kind of how the two-way conversation works. He speaks to us, we speak to him. But when you read verse 14, which one is it? Is that Bible study or is that prayer? It's kind of both, isn't it? Reading God's word is actually teaching us how to respond to God's word. I think that's awesome. And if I could recommend a single verse to memorize and to pray, verse 14 is an excellent one. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. But the final phrase of the psalm refers to God as David's rock and redeemer. It's a picture of security on one side and rescue on the other. Picturing God as his rock pictures him as a place of stability. It's like an anchor or a refuge. David is saying to God, you are always there. You never change. I can always depend on you. Come what may in my life, whether I'm going through good times or bad times, whether it's easy or whether it's hard, you are always there and I can always depend on you. But when he calls God his redeemer, that pictures him as the one who goes and brings him back when he strays from the path. To redeem someone is to buy them back. And Clearly, in the most ultimate sense, God has redeemed us with the death of his son. But David is saying to God, you are the one who I can always count on. And you are the one who brings me back when I stray. Let me learn to be totally one with you. It's a beautiful psalm. It's one that I think is just powerful for us for a lot of different reasons, and it's worthy of our meditations. But the psalm is actually cited in Romans chapter 10. And it's cited in a way that's really interesting, in a way that you might not expect. And so this is where we'll finish up this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him and whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for 
their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Do you recognize verse 18? That is from Psalm 19 and verse 4. And if you can remember back to the beginning of this lesson, when we were looking at that verse, we noticed that that was a verse that was talking about the stars. How God has sent the stars into every corner of the planet so that everybody who lives can look up and see something about the Creator. But in Romans 10, when Paul quotes that verse, he's not talking about stars. He's talking about preachers. He's talking about people who take the good news with them and they share it to the people that they come into contact with. It's kind of like Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see the point? God wants us to be like stars. God wants us to be out there in a crooked and twisted generation, surrounded by darkness, shining brightly as lights. And just like the stars have made God's glory known to the ends of the earth, God has entrusted you and me with the same mission to take the specific revelation of the gospel to everywhere that the general revelation has already gone. To pour out speech day after day, night after night, telling people about the glory of the Creator and telling them about His Son who died for their sins. That's why we're here. That's why when we come to know God and love God, that he doesn't just, you know, zap us up into heaven. He leaves us here for a while. He leaves us here to be surrounded by darkness, to shine as lights, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so our mission is the same as the stars. To go into all the world and to tell them the good news about the Creator who's wonderful and wise and glorious and who loves them and wants to have a relationship with us all. There might be somebody here who realizes your need to come to God. You might realize that you have been living in the darkness for a long time, but through the word of God, you can become somebody who's wise. You can become somebody who has your eyes enlightened. You can have your soul refreshed and revived. You can have your heart rejoice. And that's a relationship that's made possible through God's own son, Jesus Christ. He died for our sins so that we could be forgiven of them and live our lives in his service joyfully anticipating the time when we'll be taken home to be with him forever. 
If you want to come to God through his son Jesus and you have not yet been baptized into Jesus, you have the opportunity to do that. If you believe he's the son of God, if you're willing to confess your belief, if you're willing to repent of your sins, you can begin a whole new life today. And if there's something that you need to make public, a sin you need to confess, prayers that you want to ask for, you have the opportunity to do that as well. If we can help you in any way, please come to the front while we stand together and sing.